Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. Today I'll be teaching through the book of Galatians chapter 5 and I'm reading in the New International Version as usual. So grab your Bibles and let's get started. I'm reading verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul asserted that Christ set us free. That's what he's putting forth. The Galatians were free, and he wanted to remind them that they were free. Christ freed us from the entanglements of the law, uh, but we have to determine to stay free. It's up to us. Christ died on the cross, handed us our freedom. We have to maintain it. We have to determine that we're going to stay free the same way we got free, through faith in Jesus Christ. Under Christ, love is the only law we're bound to, and through the power of Christ, we're able to keep the commandment to love one another. Now, we have to be uh, uh, deliberate about this. We have to have our minds made up that we're going to live like this, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to, to love other people. Uh, the Bible says that God is love, and when he comes into us by his Spirit, he brings his love in, into us and gives us a greater capacity to love. Love is the only law Christians need for two important reasons. Number one, um, first of all, love restrains us from doing wrong to others. That's the first part of love. It restrains us. It, it uh, uh, holds us back from doing wrong to others. When we do wrong to others, we have a check in our spirit. Paul said, love does no wrong to anyone. So love satisfies all of God's requirements. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 10 in the New Living Translation. So first of all, love restrains us from doing wrong. That's, that's the uh, first facet of love. And then uh, secondly, love compels us to treat each other uh, as we wish to be treated. It restrains us from doing wrong to other people, number one. And then secondly, it compels us to do good to other people. Uh, the Bible says, do for others as you would like them to do for you. That's in Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 3 in the New Living Translation. The second rule of love not only restrains negative behavior, but it promotes positive behavior. So love restrains us and love compels us. Love holds us back from doing wrong. Love pushes us to do right. Uh, this is what we call the golden rule. Um, it's our life guiding principle. It's the law of empathy. Empathy is feeling the way other people feel, being able to put yourself in their shoes. It demands that we put ourselves where our, our neighbors are, what, what they're going through. We can feel it. We should be able to feel the pain, to bear the burdens of other people. We're challenged to look at our neighbor's needs and in some way to try to address them. 
John summarized this law. He wrote this, these words. Uh, but if anyone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need and refuses to help, how can God's love be in that person? That's 1 John 3.17 in the New Living Translation. Now, uh, so love com compels us to do good for other people, to see other people who are in need and move to try to help that need. It restrains us from doing wrong. It compels us to do right. Now I'm reading verses two through four. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. He's obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. So to the Jews, circumcision was like water baptism to the Christian. It symbolized admittance into the covenant. The first thing uh, a, convert, uh, a convert to Judaism uh, was com compelled to submit to was circumcision. Uh, if they were willing to undergo that, now this is a it was a very dreadful and painful procedure to have the foreskin cut away from uh, the uh, genital. That's a very painful thing to have to endure. Uh, but if they were willing to, to go through that uh, excruciating pain, then they were accepted into the Jews' religion. But by submitting to circumcision and the law, these Gentiles were actually rejecting the work of Jesus Christ. So Paul is telling them there's no need for that. Um, don't, don't submit to circumcision. You don't need it. All you need is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, from the time of Abraham, the Jewish people had been commanded to circumcise their children at eight days old. After they were eight, eight days old, they were to circumcise every male. And this was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And later, it became a sign of observance of the Mosaic law. Um, you can find that in Genesis chapter 17, verse 12, and Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. The Jews had religiously followed circumcision, but not, a, not one of them was able to keep the law. Not perfectly. And, and so since they couldn't keep the law, then they could not gain righteousness uh, and justification through keeping the law. But still, they were... Uh, trying to do it, and they were trying to imp uh, impose it upon the uh, the Gentile Christians as as part of the requirement for salvation. Now I'm reading verses five and six. But through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. When we turn to Christ in faith, God's Holy Spirit comes in and begins to work in our hearts. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. First, by perfectly obeying the law. During his lifetime on earth, he perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled it that way. And then he fulfilled the law by paying the awful penalty of death on the cross. He paid for our sins by hanging on the cross. So he, he lived the law perfectly on earth in his humanity, and then he went to the cross to pay for our sins, and he gave it all to us. And that's why we are free when we place our faith in Christ. 
we become one with him. Uh, and so uh, in essence, we are dead with him. We died with him to the old life and we rise in a new life. Okay. Now, after successfully fulfilling the law, Christ removed it and provided a new and better way for all humanity to be right, made right with God. And that is by faith in Jesus Christ, faith in himself. But Paul made it clear that faith expresses itself through love. In other words, true faith in Christ will compel us to show love to God and show love to our neighbors, those who are around us, to uh, show love to God and show love to others through acts of kindness. We show love to God by, by loving him, by submitting to his will. We show love to other people by uh, treating them as we would like to be treated. If we truly have faith, we will love other people. And Jesus said this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one to another. Uh, actually, that's, that, that's John 13, 35. That's what, uh, uh, that's what we're commanded, to have love one to another. Jesus told us that. Love in action is actually the evidence of faith. Love in action is the evidence of faith. So Jesus said, uh, you'll be known. If you're truly my disciples, you'll love one another. Now I'm reading verses seven and eight. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. So Paul was disappointed at the turn the Galatians had taken. Initially, they had demonstrated such great promise, such great faith. Their faith was growing. They had love and they had joy and they had peace. They had gratitude. They were uh, grateful to Paul for sharing the gospel with them and showing them the love of God. But suddenly their attitude toward Paul changed to suspicion and, and resentment because uh, they had uh, swallowed what the, what the Judaizers were teaching. They had swallowed a false doctrine, They'd given up their freedom and, and, and were now being bound by legalism. The Judaizers were binding them. Using a foot uh, analogy of a foot race, Paul said the Galatians were running well. You, you were doing good. Who cut in on you? Uh, so Paul is saying that, uh, using that analogy, that you were, you were running a good race, but somebody cut you off. Somebody caused you to stumble. And of course, it was the Judaizers who cut in on them and held them back from running effectively by teaching false doctrine. Now I'm reading verses 9 through 10. A little, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. So there's an old saying, one bad apple will spoil the whole, uh, the whole barrel. And, and this is actually what was happening with the, with the, uh, the Gentile, the Judaizers had come in and, and uh, sowed the, uh, the, the, the yeast of false doctrine. Uh, they had come in and spoiled the, uh, uh, the faith of the Galatians. So Paul was very disappointed over this thing. Uh, he knew that they were contaminated with... Uh, uh, with false doctrine, and it was working its way through the entire congregation, like yeast working through a batch of dough. 
Galatians had been infected by the doctrine of the Judaizers and it had spoiled their faith and bound them up. But now Paul was determined to rescue them from their error. Now I'm reading verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. Well, there was a false rumor circulating that Paul was teaching circumcision and observance of the Mosaic law. Okay, So Paul emphatically denied that. He let them know, I'm not teaching circumcision. I don't care what you've heard. I don't care what you've been told. It's possibly the Judaizers that were spreading that rumor to get the uh, Galatians to submit to circumcision. But Paul is saying, uh, no, I'm not teaching circumcision. Uh, and as proof that the rumor was fall, or false, uh, he reminded the Galatians that he was being persecuted by the Jews for refusing to teach uh, circumcision. Paul could have easily escaped that uh, persecution by compromising and beginning to, to teach, okay, you can be circumcised and keep the law of Moses as long as you walk in Christ as well. Uh, but that would have been false doctrine. Paul knew that the strength of a Christian lies in faith in Jesus Christ and not in the works of the law. So he was not about to sell them out by, uh, by teaching that false doctrine, rendering them completely ineffective and taking away that robbing them of their strength and of their salvation. Now I'm reading verse 12. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. So Paul's frustration with the Judaizers ran deep. Rather than cutting away that tiny bit of foreskin, Paul said, uh, he wished those Judaizers would go all the way and, and completely lop off their genitals. <laughs> it, that's kind of crude the way that he puts that, perhaps, but uh, it, it reveals his frustration. He was frustrated with how these uh, Judaizers were always waiting with a sharp blade to, uh, to circumcise someone and, and, and uh, proselytize, get them uh, over into Judaism. They, they just stood ready, waiting um, to circumcise someone. That's what they, they, that, that, that's what they were driven by, getting people into their religion. Now I'm reading verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Paul warns against two, ex two extremes here, the extreme of legalism and the extreme of license. Legalism is a set of man-made rules, restrictions, and regulations that rob Christians of their freedom and places them in bondage. We uh, um, uh, some common form of, of forms of legalism in America that that uh, we saw and experienced was teaching things like women can't wear makeup or or women can't wear pants or there are a whole lot of if you can't go to to ball games or you the, uh, just things that have nothing to do with scripture uh, of things that that people feel makes them closer to God. It had nothing absolutely to do with uh, serving God. So they're brought in and those, those things are added in. The Judaizers had a long list of do's and don'ts that had nothing to do with God. They were traditions that actually nullified the word of God and made following God almost impossible. So 
these two extremes that Paul was warning about was legalism. That's legalism when you add a bunch of rules to what God has said, and it adds a great burden upon people and, and makes it difficult for them to follow God. Now, when television was first invented, the legalists taught that it was a sin to own or watch one. They called them one-eyed devils or one-eyed demons. Now, rather than seeking to use it as a tool to promote the gospel or to provide the public with some wholesome form of entertainment, the legalists condemned it and abandoned it, okay? Now, so you've got legalism on one extreme, and then then on the other hand, you've got license. License is the tendency to use the many freedoms that we have as Christians to indulge our sinful passions. License is when we say that I'm free to do whatever I want to do uh, because I, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I can sin. I can sin with impunity. I can do all these things. Anything that I want to do, I can do. That's license. So those are the two extremes. Christians are free from the bondage of the law, but we were made free to do the will of God and not the will of our own flesh. So we've been free to obey God. We, uh, we were freed from bondage of the law. We were freed from the bondage of sin, but we have been freed to become slaves of Jesus Christ. In a sense, we are his servants. Uh, he owns us now, lock, stock, and barrel. And so um, um, our part, our role, our responsibility is to obey him. True believers may fall down into sin. They may fall into sin, but they're miserable in sin until they get up and get out of it. People who are comfortable in sin, people who can just sin with impunity and have no remorse or no regret and no conscience about it, uh, need to check their faith and see if they are really followers of Christ. In verse 13, Paul said this, we are free to serve each other in love, not to indulge our sinful nature. So um, we are free, freed from sin, freed from the law, freed from the slavery of sin, freed from the slavery of law, but we are free to serve one another. We are free to serve God. We're free to do what is right. Now, verse 14, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love liberates us from the Mosaic law while at the same time compelling us to do those things that please God and serve the interests of other people. Our freedom ends where the needs and well-being of our neighbors begins. The choices of what we do or choose not to do should be done in consideration to the, uh, the royal law, which commands us, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the royal law. James 2 and 8. God commands us to make our choices based on the positive or negative effect it has on other people, not on legalistic rules or regulations. We have to weigh what our freedom, how it affects other people, the things that we do, how, how it affects other people. Paul said, uh, I'm free to eat meat, but I won't eat it in front of somebody uh, that believes that it's wrong to eat meat. Uh, I will curtail, cur uh, curtail my freedom in their presence. Because a man loves his wife, example, he resists the temptation to commit adultery. He realizes that he does not have the freedom to offend God and hurt his wife and his family. Okay, 
because a woman loves her husband, another example, and her family, she chooses to be a faithful wife because she realizes that uh, she's not free to do anything that damages her husband or her family. In the same way, children who love their parents submit to them and obey them because uh, to do otherwise displeases God and, and, and hurts their parents. The law of love compels us to care for other people, to care for ourselves and to care for other people. But also, we have to care for ourselves and, and because we're all interconnected. And people who think that, well, I, if I commit suicide, then I'm just hurting myself. No, uh, you're breaking the hearts of those who love you. So uh, nobody lives to themselves. Nobody dies to themselves. We are all interconnected. And so we have to treat each other like we would want to treat ourselves, like we want, we'd want to be treated. And so we also have to consider uh, when we do ourselves wrong, if we get on drugs, it hurts somebody. We become drug addicts or, or slaves to any kind of vice uh, that is damaging. It hurts other people. So we don't have the freedom to do as we please. Uh, not with, without regard to how it affects other people. We have to consider how the things that we do affect other people. Now I'm reading verse 15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Love compels us to promote peace. That's what it does. If we begin to engage in bickering and damaging words and conduct that hurts other people, it should alert us that we need to regroup and we need to get ourselves back in line. When we drift off, and Christians will drift off, sometimes we'll get it wrong, uh, but we have to be willing to repent of that and get ourselves back on track and back online. That's the way God will have us to do it. The Galatians were beginning to exhibit one of the inconsistencies of living a legalistic Christian life. That's what legalism does. It, it, you have great inconsistencies. Legalists tend to strain at a net and swallow a whole camel. Okay? That's Matthew 23 and 24. Jesus said that. In other words, they tend to ignore those things that are important in the Christian life and make a big deal over things that don't really matter to God. They have it backwards just because they're walking by these legalistic rules and man-made rules and regulations. Legalists tend to be more concerned about obeying rigid rules than demonstrating loving conduct. The Galatians had gotten into this practice because they had fallen under the influence of the Judaizers. And, and because they had began to try to practice law, um, then they had lost their strength and they'd lost their, they'd lost their way. And they had lost their Christian character and they began to bicker and and do the things that legalists do. Now I'm reading verse 16. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The power to conquer evil desires comes from the Holy Spirit who comes into us, comes into our lives through faith in Jesus Christ, not by observing the law, not by trying to follow man-made rules. The power of the Holy Spirit to live a new life comes in us only through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was trying to get the legalists to see, to get the Galatians to see uh, and, and the Judaizers to see. Instead of following rules and laws, 
in an attempt to overcome certain sins, we should simply seek God each day, every day in prayer. Begin your day by getting down on your knees and asking God to give you the strength to obey him during that day. Ask God to fill you with his spirit afresh and anew. We need to be freshly refilled. Every day we need to get before God and ask him for his strength. Ask him to give us the strength to obey him. Ask him to fill our, our minds with his thoughts, our hearts with his will. We need to spend time reading the word of God and, and uh, meditating upon his word and letting him lead us and guide us. It's the Holy Spirit who changes lives through the release of his power in us. To live or walk in the spirit requires a, a conscious awareness that we are helpless without God's help. Okay, so uh, we go to God every day. We ask him for his help, his strength, his protection, his guidance. We spend some time in worshiping him, and then we go on our day. Now, it's equally, equally important for us to be constantly aware of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We have to um, practice the presence of God. Remind yourself that you are in Christ and he is in you, and reflect upon that and meditate upon his word. It means to be ready to live according to the leading of the Spirit. That's what walking in the Spirit is. Um, as he brings to our minds the knowledge of his will and of his word. <clears throat> as he releases his power in our lives, we should use that power to do what we know is right and pleasing to God. Paul wrote to the Philippian church these words. And now that I am away, you must be even more careful to put into action God's saving word, uh, God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And I was reading, I read that in the New Living Translation. The Holy Spirit provides everything we need to live the Christian life. He places the desire in us to live a righteous and godly life. And then he gives us the ability, the power to live that kind of a lifestyle. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that brings about this desire and the power to obey God is called sanctification. He is sanctifying us. That is, he is changing us and transforming us and working his will in our lives, and we get progressively better and better. These disciplines are, uh, the, 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 there are certain disciplines that we need in our lives. God gives us the opportunity to use the power that he releases into our lives to fulfill the desires he places in us. He gives us the desire to obey him, and then he gives us the power to obey him. Now, there are three important disciplines that every Christian should develop to facilitate the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, okay? You need to feed yourself. Uh, these disciplines are prayer, Bible study, faithful church attendance. Every Christian needs to engage in these. You can't drop out of the game because you've been church hurt. I hear a lot about church hurt. And people want to opt out of church, okay? You're doing yourself a great disservice because God God didn't establish the church for you to opt out of it. So uh, if you are a Christian not going to church, you are wrong, okay? You need to find a good Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church so you can get in there uh, 
and, and learn and grow and also serve because we're not long ranger Christians, all right? So those three disciplines are those that you need to develop in your life. Uh, you need to uh, read the word every day. You need to develop prayer in your life every day. And you need to attend church regularly, okay? Through prayer, first of all, we open our hearts and minds to the will of God in our lives. We engage in worship and thanksgiving, and we make our requests known to God. That's Philippians 4 and 6. Through Bible study, we learn directly from God's word what his will is. That's Ephesians 3, 4 through 5 and Psalm 119, 11. Now, through church attendance, we're taught the word and the will of God by those he has chosen and anointed to be teachers and preachers. Uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Jeremiah wrote these words. <clears throat> and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. That's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. So God didn't give you these pastors for you to walk away from. Uh, and not sit under. Church fellowship is so important to the equipping of the Christian to live the Christian life that the Bible says this, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the, that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. That's Hebrews 10, 25. Jesus said, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I said to you. And that's John 14, 26. And I read that in the King James Version. The Holy Spirit teaches us and brings through our things to our memory through his ministers, through personal study of the word, through prayer, and through our life experiences. He will remind us of what we've learned during those times in our lives when, when we need that information. He'll bring it back. Uh, we, have to, we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and put the word in us by reading his word, prayer, fellowshipping with the people of God, sitting under teaching. And then when we get into a situation in life, God brings those things flooding back into our lives. Now I'm reading verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not, uh, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Okay. So these two opposing forces in a Christian life, they are the desires of the sinful nature and the desires of the Holy Spirit. Okay. You're a Christian, yes, but you'll find that you still have a bent, uh, a bent toward doing wrong. You will have a desire. There'll be a pull in you to do wrong, but there'll also be a strong pull for you to do right. And we have to throw our weight on the side of doing right on the side of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian experiences this conflict in desires. As long as we live in these unregenerate bodies of flesh and blood, we will experience sinful desires and we will experience godly desires if we're Christian. At the time we're born again, the Holy Spirit imparts his life into us. We receive from him the desire to resist the sinful cravings of our flesh and to carry out the will of the Spirit. We, we have a strong desire to do right when we get saved. 
The Holy Spirit works his righteous will in us, pulling us toward these righteous desires while the, the flesh or the sinful nature tries to pull us away from the will of God and pull us over to commit sin. The flesh and the spirit are against each other, and we find ourselves in a tug of war. There are times when we're able to overcome a temptation with relative ease, but there are other times when it seems to require all of our strength to overcome certain temptation. Now, the Holy Spirit enables us to resist the desires and the allurements of the flesh because he gives us the desire to do what's right, but he also gives us the power to do what is right. That's in Philippians 2, 12 uh, through 13 and Acts 1 and 8. However, we are admonished to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the struggle against the flesh and against sin by building up our faith and by doing those things that increase the knowledge and the power and the will of God in our lives. Galatians 6 and 8. Okay, so um, we need to engage, we need to develop these uh, spiritual habits, these spiritual disciplines of prayer, um, study, and church attendance. Those are three. And meditating upon the word would be number four. Now, I'm reading verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Those who rely on the works of the law to free them from sin will never be free. But while the law could not free us from slavery to sin, the Holy Spirit can and does. The ideal and goal of the Christian life is to live completely above sin. That's our goal. That's our aim, to, to live completely above sin. The Apostle John addressed the issue of, uh, of uh, living um, above sin in his first epistle. And here's what he, what he wrote. My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, there is someone to plead for you before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleases God completely. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 in the New Living Translation. So John challenged Christians not to sin, but he recognized the fact that Christians are susceptible to sin, that sometimes Christians do fall into sin. So he added that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, someone who pleads our case. Jesus Christ is our mediator. And when we sin, we need to go to Christ, ask his forgiveness, uh, and ask him to restore us, and he will mediate. He will advocate for us with the Father, and he will cleanse us from our sins. Now I'm reading verses 19 through 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list is a sampling of the sins that people tend to engage in when they allow the, the desires of their flesh to lead them. Paul couldn't list them all. The list is, is too long. The goal of this list is just to 
convey the idea of how unstable and destructive a lifestyle um, of giving in to human sin and passion is and can be. When we become Christians, we become new creations, new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us we receive new life and we are expected to mortify, that is, put to death the deeds of our old sinful nature uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 tells us that in Colossians 3 and 5. Using the power of the Holy Spirit, we're expected to submit ourselves to God and to resist the devil and the Bible says he will flee from us, okay? We are, uh, are to resist his enticements and focus instead on the word of God. Now, after this long list of sinful behaviors in verse 21, Paul issues a stern and sobering warning that people who live like this, people who choose this kind of a sinful lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, as Christians, we're, we're required to make a choice as to how we live our lives here on this planet. Um, we as Christians are compelled to live our lives in submission to the desires um, of Christ and not to the old, old sinful nature. Uh, we are to submit ourselves to the will of God and make it our endeavor to please Christ in all that we do. The evidence of salvation is the transformation that takes place in the way we live our lives. Those who continue the old sinful lifestyle with no change in their lives, they don't have any evidence of their salvation. And so uh, Paul is not saying that we earn our way to heaven by, by living sinful lives. We can't, we can't do that. And we can't, uh, I don't care how good we live, we can't earn heaven. Okay. But he is saying that the evidence that we are saved, that we do have the kingdom, that we are uh, uh, going into heaven, we will go to heaven, is the fact that we've been transformed, that we live a different kind of life, okay? So people who do not display this transformation um, that the Bible says happens to every Christian, then uh, it is doubtful if they are a Christian. If you're living the same way that you were living before you claim Christ, then you need to check yourself because Paul gave that sobering warning that people who live like this evidently are not saved. Uh, so they can't expect to inherit the kingdom of God. When Christ comes into our lives, we have a new life in him. We're not perfect, but our lives are dramatically transformed and we are getting progressively better as we pursue the will of God. Now I'm reading verses 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Following the desires of the Holy Spirit produces all kinds of good fruit or good deeds in our lives. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the nature of God or the divine nature, the Bible calls it. That's 2 Peter um, 1 and 4. The desire of the Spirit is to produce the character and attributes of God in our lives. Um, the fruit of the Spirit actually represents the attributes or the characteristics of God. Uh, a Christian who is submitted to the Holy Spirit is like a boxer in training. Okay, To become a champion, boxers have to have a trainer. 
Champion becomes champion because they carefully follow the directions of their of a good trainer. Uh, they pay strict attention to the trainer's instruction and does exactly what he tells them to do. As the fighter follows these directions, he's able to find and exploit the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of his opponent and become a champion. That's what Paul is telling us to do when he says that we are to follow the spirit, we'll submit to the spirit. Uh, we are to walk in the spirit. Uh, he's saying that we are to be led by the spirit. We are to listen to the spirit. We are to follow the dictates of the spirit. We are to carefully follow his instructions so that we, be, we will become those champions in Christ that he wants us to be. The Holy Spirit develops us. He develops our a character and he leads us in the ways of Christ. In our Christian lives, there are some sins that we can get rid of relatively easy. But there are others we have to struggle with. Uh, and certainly there are strongholds that we have to uh, work on and work on and work on. And we have to stay with God and not get, get discouraged and keep reading and keep praying and keep doing what you know is right and keep confessing uh, and God will bring you out. Okay, But we have to remind ourselves that we're making progress as we're struggling against sin. In order to overcome these strongholds, we, we have to pray. We have to ask God for strength. We have to stay before him. Now I'm reading verses 24 through 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. When we become Christians, we have to realize that the old sinful nature has been crucified, and we have to conduct our lives in light of that reality. We have to consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's Romans 6, 11. Our intent and our determination must be to live a new kind of life, which is completely opposite of the old lifestyle that we once lived. Obedience to God requires strength. To gain that strength, we have to do three things. Okay, I know that I'm repeating this almost to the point of redundancy, but that's how we learn. Number one, we have to spend time in prayer every day. Pray for the Holy Spirit's power and guidance. Two, we have to read the Bible every day. David said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then three, we have to attend church regularly. Be faithful in church attendance and uh, so you can be taught the word of God so that you can get the word of God down in you. And so you can serve. God wants us serving one another. Uh, it's, it's also extremely important to uh, practice what we learn, put it into practice. Paul closes chapter five by warning Christians to avoid selfish behavior like conceit and selfish ambition, uh, insensitivity to the feelings of others, and envy and jealousy. Every Christian is going to experience these kinds of selfish feelings and desires, but the Holy Spirit will alert us to them. Uh, and uh, when they arise in us, he expects us to surrender that to God, to confess that, to turn away from it, and to uh, embrace the, the things, the attributes, the fruit of the Spirit, and pursue the will of God. We shouldn't be comfortable. Don't get comfortable uh, with your sins. Don't cozy up with them. Uh, never become comfortable with the, those things and don't make excuses for your sin. Don't say that's just the way I am. No, 
Um, that may be the way that you were when Christ got you, but that's not the way you should be. We want to be like Jesus. He is our example, and, and, and we're following after them, him. That's what it means when it says that we're followers of Christ. It means we're following his lifestyle. We are imitators of God. Well, that brings us to the close of Galatians chapter 5. In our next teaching through the Bible session, we'll study uh, chapter 6. Now, much of what I've shared with you today is from a commentary that I wrote on the book of Galatians. And you can order it from uh, my website at uh, EmergeCurriculum.com. And I want to tell you that if you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come worship with us at New Direction uh, Church, where my son is the pastor. Um, our uh, East Campus is on East 38th Street, um, 5330 East 38th Street. And our North Campus is at 7701 um, Hague Road. Okay. We're on 86 and Hague Road, uh, 7701 East 86th Street uh, at the corner of 86 and Hague Road. So I'd love to see you at uh, one of our services. But until then, uh, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.